Hello, everyone. I'm Hazel Shaw, and I'm here to guide you through the toughest transitions in life, business, and even love. Welcome to Endings. And all of a sudden, there's a bit of cloak and dagger stuff, so you just feel naturally uncomfortable doing it. Comfortable doing it. In today's episode, I'm speaking to Andy, co-founder and director of Known Origin Labs. What started as a passion project grew to a 50 million valuation in just two years. Following this meteoric success, Andy faced losing control of everything he built when he received an offer too good to refuse. While you're listening to Andy, pay close attention to how he lets his values guide his decision-making process. After you hear Andy's story, I'll explain how you can stay true to your core beliefs through periods of change. But first, let's go back to the beginning. Andy's story starts with curiosity, a fascination with an emerging technology, specifically blockchain. So I started reading a little bit about it. It sounded quite fascinating. What really attracted me to cryptocurrency is the ability to, with lines of code, actually send value. And with that spark of interest, Andy and some friends decided to put together a small platform to see how the blockchain tech worked in practice. We all wanted to play with this thing. We wanted to see what it really meant to build a blockchain-powered application. One of Andy's co-founders spotted a gap in the market using blockchain technology to authenticate the sale and ownership of art. One thing led to another, and suddenly, Andy and his co-founders were hosting a pop-up art gallery, a far cry from the world of programming. And we just invited a lot of people down, bought some drinks, everyone turned up, everyone was sort of fascinated, and we sold a few little pieces of art on the blockchain. And then we were like, oh, this is quite fun. The business continued to grow as Andy balanced his full-time job and passion project. It was a pleasure when you're into something and it's fun. You don't mind going in your bedroom at eight at night and doing a few hours or picking it up on a weekend. When people are starting companies, you've got to do it for nothing and presume it's going to go nowhere and earn any money because you wouldn't bother in the first place. His dedication paid off. So much so that he and his co-founders were quickly able to quit their day jobs to focus on known origin full-time. Their niche was creeping into the mainstream. With the groundswell of interest and the, the growing success of the platform, it then led to conversations that started talking about acquisitions and getting larger shares of the company and, and bigger players in the space. Eventually, a serious offer to buy the business was made. One that offered a life-changing opportunity, but could bring dramatic changes to the foundations of the company. That was sort of a seminal moment where the three of us really had to look each other in the eye and say, are we all on the same page? We're not going to do this unless we all want to do it. We're not going to drag one of us along. So, you know, and then there was some hesitation, there was some doubts, some questions, some unknowns. So, some pretty huge companies are looking to invest in your platform. On what basis do you decide whose investment to take, if any? Investment for us, we realised over time, wasn't all about just getting some cash so you feel comfortable. It's getting that bit of guidance from investors, connecting you to the right people and, and keeping you on the critical path of where you want to go and build out a, a roadmap and runway so you have the ability to execute on what you want to do. 
But in the crypto space, back in in our first round, you know, it was still very much crypto investment companies who invested in firms like ours. We spoke to a lot of people and although we were doing some decent numbers, people don't just throw money at you, we realised, and we had to really work hard to secure that first round of seed investment. And we sold a small part of the company and got seed funding. But then again, it's like people tell you that you're going to need more money again quickly. To play on a global scale, you know, it takes it does take a little bit of resource and time and cash and even infrastructure. As the platform was ramping up, our bills for infrastructure were growing tens of pounds to thousands of pounds. And then if you start projecting that across the year, you're like, wow, it's going to cost, you know, 100,000 to keep this thing going. And that's what a lot of people don't really realise because they think you're just running a little website. Well, you know, we was processing a lot of images, doing a lot of stuff. It takes money to generate the revenue and, and have that business model. There was another round of funding, like what traditionally people might call a Series A. That came probably only nine or ten months after the seed round was completed because you quickly realise, no, it's great we've raised a little bit of money, but we actually need some more money. Yeah. <laughs> when it came to deciding, though, who you would accept as a, an investor, I know when we talked, to you'd got a clear view on what mattered to you. Do you want to say a bit more about that? At the start, we were very clear in wanting crypto investment funds because they understood what we were talking about. We'd speak to traditional investors and they were very excited, but they couldn't read the numbers that we had. They didn't make sense because, you know, you're three or four people generating some big numbers, but there's no guarantee and it's in crypto and crypto is volatile and then you've got to get it in a real bank. In the end, crypto investors understood that there may be token models involved, you may have to rip up the old rule book of how you're going to value a business. Over time, as, as the industry matured, obviously it, traditional investment companies and traditional companies start getting a little more of an interest because what we were doing was then being picked up in mainstream media and it was co probably coming up in board meetings in corporations that have nothing to do with blockchain because people are saying, oh, have you heard about this blockchain? How does that affect our business? So they start internally questioning themselves. Everyone's seen like your blockbuster, you know, go out of business because Netflix is like the business change. So larger companies and larger investment firms were probably afraid of cryptocurrency, and but then they couldn't ignore it any longer. So you did attract the attention of some very big players in the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had conversations with large companies, and that was that was a real buzz at first because you're like, here's a company that I've heard of that we use all the time. And, and this happened several times. And they were like, wanted to chat to us. We were like, wow, how do they even know about us? So you just don't realize what goes on behind closed doors in other corporations. In the end, after several conversations with several very large companies, and, and obviously the ones that didn't come off, I can't name. And some were, I always felt, fishing for information, trying to, you know, hold sort of like promises of investment and, and but really to figure out what was going on in the blockchain landscape. And in the end, when we spoke to the company that essentially acquired us, again, we were thought there might be a little bit of, you know, cat and mouse, but thankfully it, it was a serious offer. But for us, it was quite unsolicited in some ways. We wasn't looking for, a, for an acquisition of the company, but opportunities present themselves. And, and if, if they make sense, you know, maybe a deal could be done. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because you had one plan, but when an offer's put on the table that makes sense, 
you're prepared to kind of pivot and change and think of something else. So you decided in the end to accept the offer. And then when we were talking, you said actually there was a value that was at the heart of them and you that mattered to you. Yeah, definitely. We got acquired by eBay, right? And we built a creator economy. Our whole goal was to support thousands of artists and maybe tens of thousands of artists one day, turn their creative output and be able to monetize it using technology in ways they could never do before. So a lot of people were putting their creative output on Instagram and stuff and didn't really get any value back. And we enabled them to sort of turn these this creativity that they had into something that could become a small business or fund them in some way. And eBay really had the same, uh, started 27 years ago and had the same model. They wanted to connect all these people who, who had a passion for something and creating and selling and in a particular category, as, as, as you'd call it, with people who want to buy that thing. So both of us had the creator economy at heart. We want to help people create, quit the day jobs, build industries, connect two people together who've got a mutual interest in some value or something. There were very interesting conversations at first because you're often talking and you feel like you're talking about the same product, but we're talking about two different businesses. And we'd never, you know, figured this out. And there's other businesses that connect people like that. But in the end, both of our products were marketplaces that are connecting two people with a, with a love of something in the middle. It's fab. We saw the connection between what looks on first glance really different businesses. While the deal was going through, there's quite an uncomfortable moment when you can't talk about it to your staff. And obviously that's for any business and anyone listening to this podcast who's, who's going through a deal at the moment will know a little bit about what that feels like. But I don't know if you want to share a little bit about how that, that was for you now that's done yeah i think obviously you learn a lot i've never uh, we've had a you know through my various businesses i've had a small acquisition but an acquisition of this size and it involves people at this point i think we had 20 staff or, or getting up to that sort of number so there's a responsibility you foster a company and you know and, and, and you're planning and then with things like this to sort of slightly derail you and then you've there's lots of you know, you've got to take on a lot mentally, making a decision whether you want to go forward with an offer. And then obviously then there's a certain amount of secrecy and, and for the right reasons, you know, you want to protect the deal and make sure it's all there. But I think in any merger and acquisition sort of play, there is a certain amount of secrecy, but it just feels uncomfortable. You're used to like communicating with your team daily, keeping them up on what's going on. And all of a sudden there's a bit of cloak and dagger stuff. So you just feel naturally uncomfortable doing it. It's not like a short time, you know, this can take months and weeks where you sort of gain an extra job behind the scenes and like sneaking out of rooms and having conversations that people who you'd normally share these things with, you're not sharing. It just prompted a lot of questions like, is this the right thing? Is it good? Because if, if it doesn't happen, then at least no one knows that we tried to do this. But on the flip side, you could gain some advice off people if it was possible. But we stuck to the plan, you know, because we wanted to get the end result, but it, it it just felt uncomfortable. Like, like outside of business, if you're keeping a secret from someone who, who'd like to tell something, there's a certain anxiety around it. And it was difficult for all the founders and people in the know of the deal because it, it's not, we're an open company. We like sharing and we like working together and discussing things. So it was just weird, really. And when you were able to tell your team, how did you handle that? Well, thankfully, um, 
large corporations I now realize have people who do this all year mm-hmm. long. So they were they prepped <laughs> us perfectly. So it was an amazing day and it was planned very strategically by eBay itself and all their mergers and acquisitions and communications team. So they really helped us. They were in Manchester. There was a, a schedule of announcements. and But you have this weird moment where I suppose I always compare it to like buying a house. There's a, there's a moment when it's done. It always feels like it's going to be done. And there's a moment when you think it's definitely going to happen. But until you get that call and get the keys in your hand, you know, it's not done. And we were sort of waiting around a little bit. And when it was done, obviously, this sort of then kicked this new chain of communication in, into effect, which was weird because you don't really have time to let it sink in and think, wow, this, we've achieved this amazing milestone because your next responsibility is getting this communication, communicating with your staff, communicating externally. So it was quite fascinating, really, how it all happened because it's in, you get into a whirlwind. And it was such an intense period. I ended up, like, a day later getting COVID. <laughs> so, like, Aww. we managed to communicate to the staff. But then I was off for, like, a week. It was like I just disappeared. But... That wasn't intentional. But the great thing about all our staff, you worry over these weeks of like hiding this information that they're going to be really upset. But it it went really well. And I think that's credit to the way the team from uh, the acquirer handled it and we handled it. And it it just shows we had a lot of trust with people in the room and they trusted us that we'd made a good decision. And But there is shock. Like you turn up for work and all of a sudden you've been bought by another company. So... (laughs) I need to speak to some of the team and say, well, what was that really like? Was it, you know, what did it feel like, just that that instant change? And I think it it took a a day, you know, everyone had to go home and sleep on it. And then the next day, the questions came. I'd love to hear what they say about it, to be honest, Hazel. It is an interesting one, isn't it? Because, like, say, any ending of something, because essentially it was the ending of the SME you'd founded and had grown and suddenly become something else. It's like an end of identity. And people can feel like, yes. is this going to end who we are and the way we work? And there can be all sorts of concerns about that. There's something new to start. You have to let go of the old. But the starting point is a little, it's a type of grief. And that first stage of shock, it's amazing how once they come, yeah, people, some people can get a bit narky and go through all the other emotions of it. But I was really taken by the trust you have in your team and how much trust had built and similarly, you thought that was a core value of your acquirer and it seemed to be a good match. The fact that it was well handled and everything was well done so that it was as well as it could be. Yeah, indeed. And the, the, the people handling the deal and the people we've met since, the nice people, I believe that they want to achieve the same things that we do. All them conversations during, you have to build that confidence on both sides that, you know, this new marriage of two companies is going to work. And we built that over time. And the more it went on, the more... We felt we were on the same page and that made it easier. It was, it was still hard because it's a total transition from you owning a part of a company and being in control. And we still, you know, help run the company now, but you don't own it anymore. So we, you have to divorce yourself from this change. But what's been interesting coming through this new start, as you call it, Hazel, is everyone's as committed and as passionate still about this project and delivering this sort of mission of helping creatives quit the day jobs and integrate that into a into a, a, a bigger company and, and then start sharing our combined goals together. That's wonderful. At least they still see it feels like the same company, the company they joined and the mission they, they want to be part of. And we're still there every day, you know, and, and trying to achieve the same things. You know, the, 
the mission doesn't really change. You know, it's just some of the... Um, the branding. Technicalities, really. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, interesting, when you're helping people to navigate change, one of the things you always say is, be clear what's not changing. And like say, if they still come into the same place to see the same people, there's some like reassurance of that. It's like it didn't all change in that moment, but the thing that probably changed for you that's quite profound that will take a little time to settle in sometimes is that almost that Solomon's choice of any founder of the point where you have to let the baby go of like, if I want it to grow to be all it can be, I have to be prepared to let it go and let go of control. But you're still there. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it's the it's the opportunity, you know, it's like, you know your own strengths, your own no weaknesses. Mm. We knew we might need support at some point, whether that's to grow the team, whether it's financial support, whether it's compliance and legal support, you know, but rapid enveloping yourself into a bigger company is not always a bad thing because you, you then gain all their capabilities as well. And then we can lean on them, they can lean on us. So it's it's been really interesting because they think about things we think about in a different way, but that's good. We get different opinions. So they are like investors themselves because they're investing in us and, and our vision. And now we have a shared vision. Good. I was going to say, do you feel any differently about the company now? No, not at all. And that, that's the good the good thing, really. It's like we still work very hard and uh, speak to a lot of artists, speak to our team. We're growing the team. We're attracting new people. And I think like when you speak to all the founders and, and the leadership team, they've still got that passion for this thing that we do which is uh, selling digital assets, working with creatives, building t- new tech, you know, being able to educate people on what we do. It's it's still there. It's the same thing. Wonderful. So if you had to sum up, what's the future look like now? Well, we believe and see the world in a certain way for, with NFTs and art. And we want to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to really use this tech and it sort of can enhance our proposition as an art marketplace and it can, and it can bleed out into other verticals so i've always loved blockchain i've always loved nfts we love cryptocurrency over time this is becoming more accepted it's still very hard to use a lot of this technology so our goal is to as well as building a successful business and business unit in some ways is to is to get the world using this tech you know we've got a shared industry goal with all the other companies who are working in this space to get it in people's hands you know i don't know if you own an nft hazel but that's the goal. It's it's whatever you're into, whatever you want to own, you can digitally own it. We can help you do that. Your first purchase might be on a, on our platform, you know, or somewhere else. But the goal is to get everyone educated and using new tech for the right reasons. As you heard, Andy was faced with a decision that many small businesses are faced with that as you get successful, at some point you often recognize as a founder that alone you are not always just the right solution to scale a business. And to let it be all it can be, sometimes you have to be prepared to let it go. It's a courageous and generous act of faith in what you've built. And it's a bit like parenting. If you've done your job right, when they're successful and independent without you, even if it breaks your heart, it's the right thing to do. So ending his control was not the wrong decision, but it was a big one. And Andy will always be the founder, as with the other co-founders. It is an indissolvable bond with the company, whatever happens in a deal. Now, the success 
was unexpected in some ways for him. But at the heart of the company remains a couple of programmers, a UX specialist and the BBC. And what you may have noticed is that the decisions he made was always based on values, a synergy that both work on trust. Uh, and I've got a lot more confidence in any relationship based on shared values. Now, the coaching that could be useful if you're going through these kind of decisions, there's, there's two angles to look at this. And sometimes there's an idea about choosing when there's no choice. So there can be many decisions facing you as a business owner where you feel like, oh, blimey, I've got no choice in this. But if you make a decision where you feel like you have no options, then you can end up resentful, bitter, and angry or annoyed. And it's quite negative and it's very hard to find a positive way forward on that. And it always tends to leak. It's a bit like imagining that uh, you've got option A, option B, and, and we always see choice as that. We've got two options and we want to feel like we can choose between them. But life actually isn't like that. Sometimes it is just, well, here's option A, choose it. And one of the most interesting skills you can develop is being okay to be faced with just option A and saying, okay, I choose it. Because of course you can always not choose, you can always not make a decision, but that doesn't take you forward. Sometimes the ability to simply accept, I only have one choice ahead of me. So I choose it and I actively choose it and I embrace all that it brings. And by actively choosing it, it becomes powerful, constructive, positive, and it takes you forward. And it has a very different sort of psychological feel when you actively choose something rather than feeling like you've been forced into something because there were no alternatives. So it's, that's more philosophy than psychology, but it is a really interesting point and something I think many business owners might recognize. The other thing to look at when you are growing a business and thinking about that point of going from startup to scale up is about managing expectations and working with your team. And if they know that they there is trust and there are expectations that sometimes there is information that can't be shared, that's not because uh, you can't be trusted. It's simply because at that point, that information can't be shared. But as soon as it can be, it will be. Then trust is sustained and maintained. And it's really interesting of building that set of expectations because having expectations of your staff and your staff having expectations of you is a core part of the psychological contract. And people need a strong psychological contract to feel they have a safe place to belong in any company. One thing you'll notice about uh, people's expectations is when they are damaged, when they feel they're not getting what they want in any business, it's like a drip, drip, drip of water on granite. It slowly wears away at that sense of connection and uh, connectivity of trust in a company. And eventually it can break. Now, in Andy's example, that is not what happened. It was able to be maintained. It was maintained through a communication when it could be, a planning of that communication really carefully, the fact that there was a passion and energy and communication at the beginning, but also the fact that because people were doing it because they really loved it, there was a shared expectation, a shared goal. All of those expectations of each other, everyone was doing what they could. Everyone was doing their bit towards a shared goal. Those things tend to uh, work out better because people have a belief that I can trust you. You will play your part and I will play mine and this will work out okay. 
So even when things are not as we expected, so something's changed, I trust you will still honour that original psychological contract that you'll play your part and I'll play mine. And we're still following our passion. So I think for any business, whatever stage you're at, if you're checking in to say, how strong is that contract? How trusting are your staff? And if you're not sure, it's never too late. You can always sit down with people and say, what do you expect of me? Let me tell you what I expect of you. How well are we doing at delivering on that? Because sometimes people expect things that you think, blimey, that's like expecting the moon on a stick and a pony called Sparkle. It's just too much. So can we meet or manage those expectations so that at least we've got a really strong contract going into any deal process? Because we've not really talked about it too much today, but going through any acquisition process can really test relationships. It's a very challenging, very stressful time and you have to really be able to trust each other because the pressure's on. Now, it was a fantastic story today and it's lovely to hear from Andy that he's been able to get through that process and emerge with a fabulous story to tell and a very positive future ahead. And that's not always what happens for everybody. So I think the key is start as you mean to go on. Clear, trusting, strong psychological contract where you can meet or manage expectations and be clear that sometimes things can't always be shared and that's not because you're trying to hide or be devious, it's because things can't be shared for commercial reasons. And as soon as you can, you will. And you've got to honour that. So as soon as you can share things, do. And you can take people very safely through the deal process. Dealing with the the stress that that can cause is a different matter. And then that's something that it depends on the person as to what they may need to cope the other side. Clearly, Andy's passion saw him through and you heard it. It was very evident all the way through that story. Now, certainly in terms of the ability to create those strong contracts, the one thing I would say is if you're ever not sure whether or not you need to revisit these expectations, I would always watch out for one of four things. Because if people feel that their expectations of their company have been broken, they react in one of four very traditional and clear ways. The first thing they do is they say something. They start moaning. Now, the one thing I have to say with British culture in particular is sometimes it's a bit understated. In other cultures, it's wonderful, it's clear. People will give you clear feedback that things are not as they should be and they're unhappy. Then the next stage is a bit more subtle because they go silent. They start to withdraw. People who used to return your calls don't return your calls. People who used to respond to your emails really quickly are a little slow at returning the emails. And that kind of silence, because essentially they are they're going quiet on you. At that stage, it's really easy when you're stressed because you're going through a deal. But what you've missed is the fact that they've actually given up. They've stopped moaning because they don't think there's a point anymore. It's actually a more dangerous phase in this breach of psychological contract. And then the next stage is even more interesting because this is when we get to what we call destruction or neglect. So they start to do harm. So everything, they actively uh, muck up. They actively uh, start anything from stealing the post-it notes and the pens to corporate espionage. They start telling your secrets to competitors. They start figuring out, can they take your database if they're going to get a job with a 
competitor. So they start doing some really dangerous and damaging things and you need to be watching out and making sure you've got the systems and processes in place to make sure that's not happening. But also recognize why it's happening. It's happening because they feel they've been let down, that they didn't get what they thought you'd agreed with them. So the first step isn't step in and get heavy, it's to step in and listen, to understand what happened. But the final stage is actually when it's too late, because the final stage is exit. You get a resignation letter. The saddest thing, I think, is when the first thing you know about breaking the expectations of your team is the day that resignation letter lands. So I'd always say, watch out for the first stage. Watch out for those minor grumblings, those, you know, they're trying to be a little bit minor about it and, and maybe underplay it. But actually, they're trying to tell you, this is not as I thought it was going to be. This is not who I thought we would be. I'm not happy. So watch out for it, deal with it at that stage. You won't get to that final and fourth stage. Huge thanks to Andy today. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Endings. And if you'd like to share your thoughts, I would love to hear them. You can reach me at HazelCS on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And if you're interested in understanding the endings happening in your own life a little, then I have a perfect thing for you. It's my five-step worksheet, and it's developed specifically for listeners of this podcast and based on years of my research. The first step will only take about 20 minutes to complete and will bring you a lot closer to understanding how to make difficult decisions around endings. Click on the link in the show notes to download your Thriving Through Endings worksheet now. Now, finally, if you know somebody who might benefit from hearing about selling control of your business, then please share this episode with them. I'm Hazel Shaw, and I hope you'll join me again for another episode of Endings.